Hi there, you're listening to On a Tangent, a podcast hosted by Ryerson's Faculty of Science. I'm your host, Sarah McIntyre. Every year, on the last Saturday of March, the world turns off its lights at 8.30pm for Earth Hour. Earth Hour is much more than a day to save energy with an hour of darkness. It's a movement to raise awareness of the urgency of nature loss and climate change on our planet. Today, we have Dr. Brian Coivisto on the show to chat about environmental awareness and what we can do to protect our planet. Brian is an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biology, and his research is in organic-based renewable energy. He is also the graduate program director for the Environmental Applied Science and Management program, and he is involved in several programs related to mentorship in science discovery at the university. Welcome to the show, Dr. Coivisto. It's so great to have you here today. How are you doing? Thank you. No, no, I'm I'm great. Thank you. And uh, please call me Brian, just so it doesn't get too weird. Okay, um, yeah, really yeah. Excited to be on the tangent. So uh, appreciate it. How does it feel to be a guest on a podcast rather than hosting your own? Um, it's a lot easier, I think. <laughs> Being a guest is is always an easier thing to do. Um, it puts you on the spot though, because you got to have more answers and less questions. Oh yeah, very <laughs> true. For the audience who doesn't know, what podcast do you host? So we create a podcast uh, during COVID called Lean In, um, and it's a Ryerson Faculty of Science sort of initiative. We uh, uh, Ryerson matches where it came from. So the course that was being offered in March, and it sort of, you know. It's, fell through right when the pandemic hit. And so what uh, I ended up doing, knowing that everybody was a little stressed and anxious and concerned, I just made a couple audio recordings for them. Uh, just sort of just, you know, hey, just to let you know that you're not alone kind of thing. And then everyone's like, hey, you should, you got a great voice for podcasts. You should do a podcast. And so then it, it grew really from that, that we decided that uh, um, to continue on the same type of content that was being delivered on Rice I Match. So, you know, interviews with professors and students and alumni and really trying to understand it. So, uh, yeah, that's, that is the podcast in its essence. And I've taken a break from it because it mostly has been student driven recently, uh, which I thought had a lot of flavor. I am going to go back to it though, because there's uh, some real calls from faculty who want to be interviewed and want to be a part of it. So, uh, okay. yeah. That's exciting. So when would you say the next episode will be coming out? So there are still some episodes that, because it's a bit of a time capsule, right, that are in backlog that we have right. in production. So there, there there, should be one coming, a few coming out soon. But the when I get back involved is when I have more time. So it won't be until the, the, the summer. So probably May is when I will uh, be back in. I'll, I'll promise not to do one on, on Earth Hour. <laughs> okay, perfect. Because <laughs> we we took that one. Yeah, you got it. You own it. All right. So as we speak on Earth Hour, I wanted to have a little chat on its purpose and the role it plays in environmental awareness. Um, so just a little, I guess, anecdote from when I was little. I remember Earth Hour used to be a really big thing when I was younger. We were taught about it in school and I'd come home and tell my parents about it and be like, okay, tonight at 8 p.m. we're going to turn off all the lights in our house. And we kind of made it a fun night. We we lit candles. We just sat in the dark. But lately I've noticed the hype kind of simmering down. I don't really think about Earth Hour. I, I Most years I forget it really exists. But do you participate in Earth Hour? I still do. Yeah. Okay. Um, I uh, it's 
it's I participate in a different way though now. I think it's changed quite a bit. It started in 2007 and um, it was about like turning the lights off and just sort mm-hmm. of getting cozy, but it's so much more now. And I think that's what people maybe don't know about is that it's it's more of a social movement. I think it was really popular. I don't know how old you are, Sarah, but in 2003, the lights went out in Ontario. Um, it was, yeah, it was crazy. Three. It was wild. Yeah, you wouldn't remember that. <laughs> in <laughs> fact, most of my students don't either. That's why my anecdotes are starting to fail. Uh, but yeah, the, in, in, 2000, in 2003, that was a big deal. Like it really shocked a lot of people. And I think um, riding through that momentum of that time period and then into what Earth Hour became, um, it was very popular in the beginning. But I think it's changed, like I said, it's still popular, but maybe not the same way that we imagined it as it was back in 2007. Do you say that you changed the practices in how you commemorate Earth Hour? Yeah, my background is actually in, um, so my research is in photovoltaics. So we, we that those are like solar cells, like we generate new gen- next generation ones. So that's like clean energy, right? But I don't think people realize um, where their energy goes in their household. I think a lot of people like Earth. So, so the idea of turning lights off in 2007 um, in terms of like energy efficiency and saving energy uh, would have made a bigger deal than it would today because in 2007, uh, people were still using like incandescent lights, like the ones that if you touch, they get hot, right? right? Like those ones, those don't exist. Like they've been banned in this country for almost all uses. So we now have like LED lights and those don't get hot. They don't use up very much energy. Like in houses, we get most of our energy or the costs are from heating water, uh, heating your house and, and and compared to lighting, that's virtually like light. Lighting doesn't even have an energetic footprint. So mm-hmm. cooling, heating, and like your fridge and your oven and your water tank and or your water heater, whatever it is, that's where the big energy is being used. So um, and you can't turn those things off unless you want to give up. <laughs> you know, yeah. have a really thick blanket. <laughs> what is the purpose of Earth Hour? Yeah, so I think it was always about raising awareness and educating people um, and just keeping it on everyone's mind. Um, it, so the environment is not an existential threat, right? Because it isn't external to, to us. It's, it, we are responsible for it and we have to maintain it. And so I think this is, and, and to be fair, most, we have, most of the solutions exist in technology to, to you know, go carbon neutral or carbon free, but it's a it's it's the will of people and political will that really needs to change if we're going to adopt these things and prioritize it. Um, so I think that's the big issue that this is trying to address is just making sure that it's always on, the, at least annually, like people are being aware of, of what's going on with the environment and how, you know, what we need to do to change. Do you think this is the most effective way to raise awareness or are there other ways? Yeah, I don't, I, yeah, that's a good question, probably for a social scientist. I'd love to see the surveys. Like what I would love to do to get the data is to be like, you know, how many people know what Earth Hour is? Because I, I bet you that would probably not be a big percentage of the population. And then of those people ask them, you know, well, do you celebrate it in some way? And I think we're getting into pretty small numbers. Um, right. But have it, but, you know, we have lots of wonderful days that are important. Um, uh, Previously in the month, we're going to have International Women's Day, right? These things are really important, but it's not just a day that 
we need to think about it's it has to be has to be on the forefront of everyone's mind and it has to create change so i think when people get into big groups um you know and they they show that they care in terms of marches or movements that's a good way to, to tell our politicians that it matters so if it's able to do that then i think it's a success so speaking of i guess telling our politicians that it matters is earth hour a day to show governments that this is important or is it to show other individuals both and i think it's both because um you know not everyone's going to participate in a march or a movement or a cause that's not this human nature right um but politicians need to know that this is something that people care about they can't forget about that um and the environment you know we've got lots of other problems going on in the world that are a bit distracting mm-hmm. and you know coming out of covid that's obviously one and those those issues um really start to dominate because they're more urgent or seemingly more urgent but um yeah the the planet is really important too because what are, what would people be fighting for if we don't if we can if it's not hospitable for us right um yeah. but i also think like you said it's not like politicians are motivated by public opinion so public has to be more made aware too and i think that that's where these kind of movements matter so how urgent uh, is climate change and addressing this because i've heard stories of scientists saying we don't have a lot of time been hearing that for years so how urgent is it and how long do we have it makes me very nervous no mm-hmm. uh, i don't like to be so this is the thing we can't be thinking in a fearful way because fear will just create anxiety and anxiety is crippling right mm-hmm. like um and you can't use strategies like shaming people because we know that doesn't work either right that's also crippling and it's not productive so i think the message has to be it's urgent it's urgent we can do something about it we can do something about it but it is really really getting close to being and and it's not me it's not the end of humanity i'll be quite honest i think there's going to be lots of humans that will survive even if the planet heats up several degrees because it's not going to heat up the same way everywhere it's the same thing we always see in when there's like a, we saw it in covid it was always the weak and vulnerable who you take the brunt of it right so it's going to be you know coastal settlements islands island nations um people who don't like this is really important and environmental justice is something like some of us will be fine and we and we know that so does that mean we just let it happen at the stake of other people's um demise and i think that's where we really have to you know check ourselves and say look everyone is important and we're going to have to protect those people um and that's where i think the the maybe the rich industrialized nations need to make more of a of a take more leadership in this role like really progressively and quickly because that's going to be our opportunity to help the the people who always get left behind whenever there's a problem and that's the people who are on the margins or or marginalized and and it's not it's not fair to them and so that environmental justice topic is really important yeah i've heard uh environmental justice is synonymous with racial justice would you agree with this it's definitely based on where you live um right because this is a climate based issue um and yes those places right now where well like just think of all of them right like if it's if it's in in africa and different the sub-saharan africa will become like the sahara will grow right it will get bigger those people will be displaced um island nations who don't have as much wealth uh you know australia is going to be fine but the other areas are going to be the ones that are going to be impacted the little nations that don't have the same sort of um uh groupings i think you know there's 
lots of people in North America and Asia that will be fine because they live in places that are, are less, uh, or have more resources. But again, even in those places, it's the people who have the resources that will, will thrive or be okay, uh, endure, I guess. And it's the people who don't in those areas that will suffer. And, 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 in, and yes, I think there is, uh, a lot of parallels to like um, racialized communities and what we see, but because they tend to also a socioeconomic divide also runs along those lines, especially in new world countries. Um, but, but it, so yes, I think it's going to be very similar to the same group of people, unfortunately. Would you say um, people from areas with the resources able to make an impact if all these people uh, did something about, uh, you know, lived more sustainably, would they be able to help areas that don't have those resources? Or is it a joint effort from everyone across the world? Yeah, it's going to have to be a multi-pronged approach, right? Because those those countries that are, are developing or, or, or underserviced, or, they need help in terms of technology because they don't have the, the, the maybe the economic wealth to buy it for themselves. Um, there are going to be some issues. I don't know. Like the, I'm, I always think to the island countries that are where the water is getting you know, really high. I, I don't know that we can protect them. So I think that's the other big thing that we're going to have to think about is like what happens when people need to migrate, mass migration. That's going to be the, probably the biggest one, right? Um, there'll be mass human migration across the globes in and out of countries. And so we need to really think maybe what nationalism looks like and hopefully abandon it to think about what globalism looks like and how we can like embrace people coming into our, our our regions and support them more effectively because that is going to happen for sure. There's going to be mass human migration as a result of climate change. We're already, see, already seeing it actually, um, and, but there will be more of it and it will be more fluid because I think you'll see a lot of people coming and going within their lifetime as opposed to right now when you see mass migration, it usually means you're going from part A to part B in another part of the world and that's where you stop and you build your family that may not happen in the future we might have to think about how where you go next and that would be tricky so we really have to think about those kind of issues um, moving forward it's inevitable that the oceans are rising are there things that are able to be mitigated or like, or not mitigated like completely fixed i think so um but the we're, i think what the bigger issue so fix completely. I mean, we saw with the ozone layer, right? We made some changes. That was a little bit of an easier problem to solve and the ozone layer healed um, because we knew it was causing it and it was a pretty easy substitution and nobody missed the fact that we weren't using CFCs anymore. But the, so the, the problem is, is that weather will become more, not unpredictable, but more violent, I guess. And so let's say you, we, we were even able to help those little, I, I'm thinking about, um, so I went to several years ago now, it seems like a lifetime with COVID, but uh, Reunion and um, uh, Mauritius, right? Which are off the coast of Africa in the Indian Ocean. Now those two islands are volcanic and, and they're pretty big and they have, well, Mauritius not so much, but like as the sea level goes up, you can't sandbag these places and keep water out for very long, right? Because yeah. there's going to be just one big storm and it's going to flood the place, right? The same would be true in the southern states, like in New Orleans and such. So when it comes to that issue, I think you're going to see a lot of, like I said, migration off those islands onto mainland, bigger surface areas where you can move around um, 
uh, easier. But yeah, we're, we're going to get more hurricanes, stronger hurricanes. We're going to get um, uh, bigger tsunamis. So all of those things and more frequent. So all of those things that need to be sort of just planned for um, in, in the whole process. But I do think that if we can get to carbon neutral, and I mean, technology exists to remove carbon from the atmosphere already, like you could remove CO2, but you know, you're not going to cool down the planet so significantly that you're going to start to see the ice cap start to form again. I don't think we, and certainly not in a short period of time. So yeah. I think that's the kind of issue, like all of these changes will take in terms of the planet to reverse them would be will take a very long time and you wouldn't see it i don't think in someone's lifetime but you can stop the damage and i think that's what uh or the human part of the damage but that's that's what we need to do who would you say has the biggest impact on the environment individuals or corporations definitely individuals and <laughs> corporations are exist because of individuals so I think it's very easy to say, oh, let's just blame the corporations. But then, okay, so you're going to give up all of those things that corporations do for you? Probably not, right? Mm. Like, even I, like someone told me this once. I'd like to fact check this. It was somebody from Google who said it, but I think it's probably changed because it's about a ten-year-old anecdote. But they once said that just doing a Google search was equivalent to boiling a cup of water for tea. That's how much energy it took. Just doing, and we do this all the time. Like we don't even think about, you know, the impact of our data because that's the other big thing is that we now we so much data is being stored, and it needs to be stored in really cold environments. <laughs> Otherwise, it heats up, right? Because the cost of keeping it cool is too much. So I think I think we don't realize what we're doing. So I think it would be it starts with us uh, as individuals and taking responsibility. Like I like. I live in Scarborough. I walk to Warden Station every day and I see people in my neighborhood getting dropped off by their parents to the subway station, which is a 15 minute walk or a five minute drive. That has that those habits have to change. Like we gotta have to give up some of these things that, because that well, just one person doing that, you know, two hundred days a year doesn't seem like a lot of energy being used, but it's actually it adds up and those things have those habits have to change. I I had a conversation with a friend yesterday actually about how unsustainable suburbs are. What is there is that even something we can eliminate or move beyond? There's some great stuff going on in at Ryerson in the the Center for uh, Urban and Regional Planning. Um and I and I get to see a part of it again in this role in the uh, as a graduate program director. And there are so many great ideas, but again, it's all about like political will. Um, because if, and, and that's the will of the people, it's all tied together. It's, it is a social problem. It's not so much a technology problem because there's great ideas. Uh, urbanization, you know, the reason why it was so sort of attractive is because everybody got to go to a central spot. Um, and that means that everyone's sort of share of their footprint is actually reduced, but they're still massive footprints, right? And suburbia and driving and the need to have it. And, but everybody wants their own little backyard or side yard, right? So. I think that's something we have to change. And I, I think I'd encourage everyone to go to Europe to see it because, you know, Europe has rebuilt a couple of times or many times over the, over the centuries. And, and they've got really good, walkable, livable cities where you don't have to, to travel very much. And then if you save that money on, you know, cars and everything else, then you, you, can, you can use it for other, other purposes that I think you make life more enjoyable as well. Exactly. So it's like a win-win. With COVID, 
um, many people have been working from home now. Does this help? Yes, depending on what their other habits are. So if they're taking two hot showers a day, <laughs> that, that's still going to be a problem, right? Um, I think, you know, commuting, regardless whether you're driving, you know, driving is, of course, the heaviest impact. And, and you know, subways are, in, at least in Toronto, are electrified. So, you know, that, but that energy still comes from somewhere, right? Um, but, like, that's the other thing, too, like electric cars. Everyone's like, oh, electric cars, that's going to solve the problem. It'll only solve the problem if you're generating energy cleanly, mm. right? Like that energy, like, so already, if you go to Alberta, that you'll actually produce more CO2 emissions than you would from driving because the way the energy is produced. So that's the other thing we have to really think about is where does the electricity come from um, that drives all these things? But yes, I think, you know, working from home would, would create a new life balance that requires less commuting. And I think that that wouldn't be a bad idea, um, not to mandate, but to give people the option or lower the expectation of coming to the office regularly so that they have more time. Uh, and there's a quality of life thing again, right? If you're not commuting for two hours a day, you can spend it with your family. And that, that has great value too. You can talk about the environment. You have time. <laughs> Do little things actually help? So, you know, a lot of people have been moving to metal straws instead of plastic straws, reusing bags for groceries. Yeah, those things make a difference, um, but they only on large scale. So if they're, if they're legislated, and I think we have, I think uh, the Canadian government has legislated that they're going to ban plastic bags and, yes. and just re non-reusable plastics. I think that's a great idea. Um, that's going to help. It's not going to remove, and that's going to help the environment in different ways, not energy necessarily intensity and what we're using it for, but, you know, microplastics we're starting to see are a big area. And we've got some great researchers studying that um, at Ryerson as well. And that's probably going to be something that we'll hear more and more of because, you know, we haven't been very good at recycling plastics over since 1950s when they were invented uh, and the numbers are quite staggering so um, yeah I think removing the use and dependence on plastic will always need it I don't think there's any question about that it's a great technology to have but removing the, the wastefulness it will be very helpful if you had advice on people listening how can we help so I think my <laughs> I actually, I've said this to my PhD student, Anthony Morgan, who does some really cool stuff in polarized conversations. And I've said this, that I think social media will destroy the planet before climate change will. <laughs> this is, I'm, I'm, I'm not really joking. I really, I have a, there's something very unsettling about the way it gets used and the way it gets, the way it spreads misinformation. And the fact that everyone is in their own little echo chamber on social media. So you get pushed, people like you get pushed towards you. And so and it's about likes and fitting in. And it's it's kind of like high school subculture has been <laughs> expanded to the entire globe in all generations. And it's and that's not high school was not a productive place for anybody, if we recall back. So like what we need to do, I think, is um, I, I would encourage everybody to, to, to honestly and, and truly look at this problem from different perspectives and embrace those perspectives. because. It's only when we all can meet and discuss and have a safe place for the conversation that we can really be honest about what we think the problems are, as opposed to just always digging our heels in and, and defending our point of view. And so I think that's really important. We've got to start having conversations. So I'd encourage everybody to say, okay, well, try to figure out how much energy you use and where you're using it. 
And, and, and if you did, you would see some pretty shocking stuff about maybe what your habits are. Then that's just get that information about yourself and your own lifestyle. Like, you, you know, it, and it's not easy for everybody, but maybe we could make an app or something that is a calculator for you. So if you take a five minute shower, this is how much energy you're going to use versus a 15 minute shower. Or if you take a bath, that's how much more water you're going to like, it'd be interesting. I think we could do it, but if we could help people understand that, or if they could just calculate their own carbon footprint. Um, and I, and if everyone would do that, that would be a great place to start. Um, and then, and then I would encourage other people to listen to other points of view. And if they upset you, that's, that's good because that means you're listening. <laughs> and I think that's sometimes we don't want to, we, we don't, we lose sight of that, that, that being upset is okay because we're, we're listening. Well, as we wrap up, is there anything else that you wish or want to mention or we haven't touched on that you think it's important yeah i think i think i I want everyone to think about everyone else's situation as well i think we touched on it briefly but this environmental justice issue is really really important and often we we lose sight it doesn't become a problem until it's your problem but this problem exists already for a lot of people and I, i it seems so simple and I think it's something I heard from Rita Bassan, Rita Bassan, who I'll give her credit for this. It really changed my life. So the golden rule is treat people the way you want to be treated, right? Mm-hmm. Every major religion has that rule. It is a stupid rule. Okay. And at that moment, and at that moment, like, and it seems like semantics and everyone's going to be like, what? And, and I think it really applies to climate change and the planet. And everything else that we've ever done and, and the conflicts we've seen throughout the world recently and COVID and everything else. And it's it's simple and it sounds like semantics. And instead, treat people the way they want to be treated. Right. Yeah. And if we just do that, I think a lot of things and stress and fracture points, whether it be the planet or anything, really start to make sense, which means we got to go ask them. Ask them what they think. How are they doing? Check in. And it takes more time, but I think in the end, you get a much better uh, solution to the all problems and, and really clever ones because you'll start to see coalescence between people. And then, and then people feel like they're invested. And I think once people feel invested um, emotionally or otherwise, then they're going to make a big, big push to, to see change. So that's what I would encourage. I guess that's where I'd like to leave off because I think it's really relevant uh, in this problem too. Amazing. And I don't, I don't, we, we don't, don't want to leave on a sad or depressing note. Like we talked about some heavy stuff today, but uh, there, everyone can make a difference and we can mm-hmm. turn this ship around. That is, and I think that's something everybody should know um, as long as we work together. So Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. It was a great, great topic for the tangent. And thank you for including me in it today. Great. Thank you.